Hey, everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. If you're looking to grow your business and get in front of a new audience, Divergent Conversations is accepting new sponsors for the 2024 seasons. We already have over 300,000 downloads and counting all over the world. And this podcast is growing all of the time. The beauty of podcast sponsorship is that you can get live pre-roll or mid-roll opportunities where we will read your ad on air while recording, getting you in front of a new audience every single week. You have the opportunity to sponsor one month of episodes at a time where you'll get four episodes in total, or you can sponsor an entire year and be the exclusive sponsor of Divergent Conversations. This is a podcast that's being distributed all over the world. The analytics are fantastic. The podcast is growing and it is a very captive audience. Reach out to us directly via the link in our website at divergentpod.com or email us at divergentconversationspodcast at gmail.com and we can get started on your sponsorship journey. So we have an awesome guest today here on the Divergent Conversations podcast. Jamie Roberts is a friend and colleague, a licensed marriage and family therapist, the founder of Equilibrium Counseling Services, a teen and young adult mental health center in Southern California. She is a neurodivergent therapist throughout social media, active speaker on neurodivergent and teen topics, odd ADHD. Uh, herself actively shares her experience with later in life diagnosis and the author in the book of Mindfulness for Teen Anxiety. So, Jamie, thanks for coming on. I know we're going to talk about the relief and grief of later in life diagnosis today, and it's something that is definitely an important topic that Megan and I have talked about quite a bit in our own experiences, and we're excited to hear about yours. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Big fan of both of you and your separate things and your together podcast, so excited to be here. So, later in life diagnosis is, a, is an important topic. I think we talk about it pretty often. Megan and I both talk about our own experiences why does this feel so important for you right now in your life and what you've got going on? So in my professional life, a big piece of it is I started doing ADHD and autism assessments in my private practice. So I'm having a lot more conversations on a regular basis of people getting their di their official diagnosis for the first time and holding that space of the relief, of the grief, of the I'm finally being seen or the pieces are coming together and it makes sense, but also like, wow, I am 25, 30, 35, 40, and just learning about this and being able to hold that space and give the resources. So it's, um, it's a reoccurring conversation I'm having on a weekly basis now. And then I also have my own experience that is an ever evolving journey of learning more and more about my ADHD and my autism and what that looks like and feels like and how that then shows up in my personal life and my professional life. That is always such an interesting experience when it's both you're experiencing it and you're having a parallel experience to what you're walking people through. I find that a really interesting aspect of being a neurodivergent therapist. Mm -hmm. that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one of like the cool things about being neurodivergent therapists working with the neurodivergent population mm -hmm. is it's, yes, me too. 
Yes, same. I've had a similar experience. I can parallel that. I know similarly what you're feeling. Yeah, absolutely. I think that creates so much more safety and connection and understanding for both the client and the therapist's ability to build that trust. Mm-hmm. So from where, you know, I've known you for a couple of years now, and I always knew, as you always have known, that you were ADHD. You identified with ADHD quite a bit. Autism is pretty recent for you. And I'm wondering, like, what led you down that path of exploration? What was happening behind the scenes where you were like, I think I want to know? Mm-hmm. Well, the ADHD was like mind blowing to me. And that's been about five years now. And so when I was 30, I figured that out. And it was that was a life altering moment to be able to like put those pieces together. I say like the first time I took medication, I feel like my third eye opened and like suddenly I had full access to my brain. And it was just this revolutionary experience. And so I think because that was just so cataclysmic that the autism was like another like, oh, oh, yep. Okay. That makes sense too. experience. It wasn't as grand. Um, And I feel like the ADHD was like a defining moment in a switch in the work that I was doing. I was already working with neurodivergent clients. Um, I was just like really good. And I got these clients. I'm such a good therapist. And then had the understanding about like, well, okay, that makes sense because that's how my brain works also. And I think once I started going down the ADHD rabbit hole and learning about ADHD and then learning about all the parallels with autism and then the overlap and then the overlap of diagnosis for it being comorbidities, I started exploring more of the things um, within autism and more and more aligned. And I was like, oh, it's just a parallel. And then there's that flip about, but is it a parallel or is it its own distinct thing? And then I got into the TikTok world of neurodivergence and started seeing more and more videos and hearing more and more stories that were were atypical and not just the white male cis stereotype that we hear about, but we're seeing women talking about it, was hearing people with ADHD and autism talking about the different presentation, was hearing people of color talk about their experience. And there was more and more I was relating to as opposed to what I had learned about what autism was from the beginning. And as I saw that presentation, it just, it clicked into place. And there was another um, professional that was going through the same experience in my office. So we kind of were reflecting back and forth to each other about like, there it is for you, there it is for you. And it just kind of really solidified in this last year about like, okay, yeah, this, this feels right for me. It's so interesting, Jamie, because I had like the parallel experience, but from the other side, like where the autism came first. And then I was discounting a lot of the ADHD as like, oh no, I think that's my autism. And then realizing it was the ADHD and be like, oh my gosh. But also the reverse of like the autism was my big aha moment. And then when ADHD, I was like, oh, that definitely explains my house. Mm-hmm. But like, and I think, and Patrick and I have talked about that, like the autism felt like the bigger identity piece. Mm-hmm. So it's so interesting to mm-hmm. hear for you, the ADHD was the big identity moment. Well, I really appreciated it in the conversations you and I've had, Megan, that you kind of point out that I'm ADHD dominant. And I think like, that's probably part of it. Like, I know I'm an extrovert and I've always known that of myself. And now I'm aligning that with some of the ADHD. And I feel like that's balanced out some of the autism for me, like the extrovertism that I'm like, is that extrovert or is that ADHD and holding those two together, but having that what's more dominant, the autism or the ADHD and how that changes our presentation and our own experience. It has been so interesting because we, yeah, we have interacted professionally some, and sometimes I find myself jealous of your ADHD dominance. <laughs> like, so for context for listeners, Jamie's doing a master class with me next week. And 
when I do master classes, I pre-record them. I edit the shit out of them. I like need to know exactly what to expect. Live presentations is very anxiety inducing for me. And I was like, Jamie, do you want to pre-record it or do you want a live audience for the master class? And it was just like, a hell yeah, I want an audience. Like how would I have my my take? Tell me if I'm wrong. My take was like, how would I have energy to present without an audience? Right. It's the dopamine hit that I'm getting that constant feedback when I see the little hands come up or a question come up. I'm like, okay, I'm on the right track. This is what they want to hear. I can do this now. It keeps that dopamine flowing for me to stay engaged. Otherwise, without that immediate feedback, I feel like my brain starts to wander. And then I'm like, wait, am I off track and have to like force myself back to like staying on track with a presentation? That's so interesting. So I've always thought about it energetically, but you're saying like the focus, it actually helps you focus mm. on that feedback loop. Whereas yeah. for me, I get really flustered when I'm presenting and then there's like things going on in the chat and there's th- like, and I, that makes me lose my train of thought and it makes me flustered be- mm. partly because I've, I've often had a prescripted idea of how it should go. Mm. But that is a that is yeah. a really interesting because I, I consider myself yeah autistic dominant so that's a interesting. I, I wonder like another part. I'm also dyslexic, and so I think having writing scripts is hard for me. And reading something or being able to follow a, that sequential plan, part of that's the ADHD. Part of that I think is the dyslexia. And so if I have to follow a script, I'm gonna mess up a script. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't have one, I'm not gonna mess anything up. Yes, yes, that makes so much sense. Yep. It's so interesting to me to hear different presentations like this because I'm thinking like I would consider myself to be autism dominant, but in these situations, my ADHD would definitely take over where I would want it to be the exact same way. Like the dopamine hit, I need all of the different pieces happening simultaneously for me to focus. Mm-hmm. I feel very robotic in a lot of parts of my life. I like the structure. I like the orderliness. In those moments when I'm presenting, when I'm talking, when I'm speaking live, I don't want that at all. That actually has the exact opposite effect where it makes me feel like I am really way too regimented going through the motions and it feels way too constricting for me. Mm-hmm. How so interesting like to hear part. somebody else's perspective and then have it flip like your perception of how, how you go into it too. I like that. Hmm. It, it's interesting for sure. So you know, I, I think for me, you know, I was, I was, I'm glad you mentioned your own experience, Megan, about, you know, your aha moment. I think I knew I, w- I was ADHD years ago, maybe five or six years ago as well. Didn't really come as much of a surprise to me. I kind of was like, yeah, that makes sense, right? Like, cishet, white male, lots of energy, lots of creativity, distractibility. Okay, sure. Check the boxes. The autism piece for me was the piece that was the aha moment. And I think it was, as I've said many times on this podcast, a grief relief moment where it was like intense grief of what life had been like up until 35 and what life was going to be like 35 on with the knowledge and understanding. And then this relief of like, finally, things start to make sense, right? Like I was searching for these answers for so long and finally it felt like there was at least an ability to anchor into the why. And I always think the why for me is really important. I love that you said that, that searching for the answer, because I think like that's the relief piece of it. As I was in therapy for 10, 15 years, I was on like medication for other disorders or diagnosis, which were symptoms. 
And then as soon as like ADHD and autism came into play, it was like a lot of the questions went away. Like so much was answered. And now it's like, okay, now I just have to interpret things through a new lens. But the why isn't so big or so heavy or so evasive. It's it's a lot more clear. Yeah. I've Yeah, I felt that so much as well. Just that the relief of having an accurate lens to understand myself. So similar to you, Jamie, I was in therapy. I was, I've talked about this on this podcast before too, but like in the process of coming to terms with like grieving the fact I would never understand myself. Um, for, for me, I was actually exploring like, is there repressed trauma that I don't know about? Because a lot of my experiences lined up with trauma, which is again, really common for neurodivergent people. And I've met so many people who are like, yeah, I had therapists tell me it was trauma or like I was exploring the possibility of trauma just because I think our our lives don't make sense to us. Our experiences don't make sense. And that's so disorienting mm-hmm. when we can sense that our experience is different than others, but we don't, we don't have that why. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was in, I was in a networking group recently where self-diagnosis came up and this wasn't a neurodivergent centered group. And I haven't been in one of those in quite a while. So it kind of threw me off, but self-diagnosis came up and it was kind of being dismissed or eye rolled. And I brought up to the group, I was like, what is the actual harm? If somebody feels connected to the community, seen by the community, their questions are being answered. What is the harm of someone self-diagnosing or identifying within it, whether you or professional thinks it's fully accurate or not? If I feel seen, then it's entirely valid and and super helpful. So can I push back a little bit, Jamie? Sure. Um, let's have a dialogical. <laughs> um, I, I, so it's interesting. I actually think I re- evolved my thinking about this based on a conversation Patrick and I had around misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, I used to say the same thing and think the same thing, but then as I thought about it. I, I actually think it can potentially have harm mm-hmm. if it's not autism mm-hmm. and then it stops the person's curiosity. So okay. let's say it is bipolar. Let's say it is mm-hmm. borderline personality. There's, mm-hmm. there are supports and treatments for that. Mm-hmm. So if some, and there's really, there's a lot of reasons someone might identify with mm-hmm. autism, especially with how, how, how it's so prevalent in social media right now. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it necessarily, right? Like, does it do harm to the autistic community? I mean, that's a different conversation, but to the person, Mm -hmm. I actually think it could, if it's not accurate. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who are self-identifying, it's it's really accurate. But I think in some cases, people are seeing little snippets, Mm -hmm. all of that fits and getting really attached to to it because of Mm -hmm. the culture around it. And I think that actually could cause harm, which I've not said it that directly before. And I'm feeling anxious even just saying that because mm-hmm. um, I realize that's kind of a controversial view in this world that we're in. Um, but yeah, that's that's where my yeah. thinking's at right now. What do you well, what do you think about that? I think like like reframing like what I said about like not being so like binary black and right about it's like harm or no harm. Like, of course, there's a window in there in which like it can cause harm to someone and to some people in some way and others like it won't. And I thinking about what you were saying about stopping the curiosity. I don't, if you're autistic, it's not going to stop the curiosity. Look at how many of us with the diagnosis have like 
self further into that research and the questions like it's not the burning I don't understand myself why but it's a what is autism what does that look like how does that show up in my life and if it isn't fully bad if it is BPD if it is bipolar you're likely going to stay in treatment like a lot of us have even with our autism diagnosis stayed in therapy stayed working on the problem and I think therapeutically if you're self-identifying and you're in therapy the protocol in therapy, it doesn't change a whole lot. Like we're going to use a neurodivergent affirming lens, which is going to work for pretty much most diagnosis, diagnoses, right? Like if you, whatever you identify is, I'm still going to come at you as your person first, like experience of your lived experience. And how do we make your life more comfortable? Whatever the label is. Yes. So I think where I agree with you, if you're autistic and you self-identify, it's not going to harm you. Yes. Because your curiosity continues. Agreed. I think this is nuanced too, because we're three mental health professionals here having this like really meta discussion about experience. And a lot of people are not always going to have that reframe or perspective when they're thinking about their own diagnoses or the the same ability to kind of take that step back and, and kind of examine it. So it's really interesting to hear both of your perspectives right now. I kind of fall in line with a little bit of both. Um, Because Megan, I remember when we were having this conversation on the podcast, we were talking about the harm, the potential harm of TikTok and diagnosis. And like you hear a 30 second viral video and you're like, yeah, that's me. Absolutely. And how there can then become implications for just completely aligning with that, that sentiment or that statement based on like, 30 seconds of uh, dialogue or research or discussion. So it's really complicated. I think social media makes this even more fascinating now that we're moving into this realm where like we have this access to this information at the touch of a button at our fingertips whenever we want it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some kind of splitting that's happening. And I I think this has also evolved my thinking. Like I used to be in those groups where exactly what you're talking about, Jamie, where like I'd be with clinicians and hear them talk, the way they talk about like TikTok referrals just makes my skin crawl. It's very dismissive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, but I've seen the conversations evolve to where like clinics who are closing their assessments because they're getting lawsuits when someone is, per, for example, when someone's given a, well, they, no, I don't want to get into specifics. When someone's not giving a, a diagnosis different than what they came uh-huh. in. Yes. And so it's, become so contentious mm. that many people are are closing and folks who are saying this are like you're right like majority of people coming in are autistic mm-hmm. but that's that small percentage who are coming in and we're not diagnosing that we're diagnosing something else mm-hmm. it gets very um it gets it's gets very activated um mm-hmm. and again i understand it because i understand the attach, attachment to autistic culture mm-hmm. um and I, I actually feel some guilt for how I've contributed to this, but this narrative of like mental health therapists don't get us. So I think a lot of us come in defended, understandably, because mm-hmm. mental health therapists yeah. don't usually get us. Yeah. But it just, it makes the assessment process, I think, really escalated. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, mental health therapists are looking at autistic culture, kind of rolling their eyes, especially if they're having some of these experiences of lawsuits. So I yeah. just think it's getting really like polarized. Mm. and really complicated that I will absolutely agree with I do think like a lot of the conversation is we have to really fight to be seen and fight to be heard and so people are coming in ready for the fight like I've had a lot of conversations with 
clients being like, what do I need to prepare to go to the doctor, go to somebody so that they believe me? And so I definitely hear you on that, like going in ready for the fight. And then if the clinician is in that space of the not taking it serious or the eye roll about social media, that being just so on the opposite sides, it, it, I could absolutely see that being harmful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of times the clinicians aren't necessarily, but we're, we're coming in prepared for that. And so, mm-hmm. and so we see this, this slights when they, when they happen, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but sorry, I feel like I've derailed our conversation. Conversation went off track. <laughs> I think it's an important, you know, lens though. And I think it's an important thing to just examine and, and to kind of pick apart too. So I'm glad yeah, you, yeah. you named that Megan. And I don't think it derails the conversation. I think it just diverges it into a different uh, lane. I mean, I know my diagnosis and this is part of the diagnosis process, whether you're self-diagnosing, whether you go in and somebody says that that's not accurate, that is a part of the relief and grief. Like what if you feel Mm -hmm. so connected to something and you go in and a professional says no, whether they're right, wrong, you're right, wrong. Like that is a grief experience too. Absolutely. And that, and that does also happen, right? So I've just said that, you know, that experience where someone's diagnosed with something and maybe they're not autistic and blah, blah, blah. But the other thing happens too, of course, mm-hmm. where people go in and they are misdiagnosed. Probably um, more often. Probably. Yeah. 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 I would, I would think so. And so the grief, absolutely. And then the like imposter syndrome and like, I've had people reach out of like, like I'm not sure if I can be part of your community anymore because I I'm I'm I someone just told me I'm not autistic and I'm like oh my gosh no like be here mm-hmm. um so it's I think that is a really huge grief experience when you've attached to this and then you're told mm-hmm. no you're not autistic yeah absolutely I think there is a lot of grief in misdiagnosis in general like whether we're talking about autism whether we're talking about ADHD bipolar disorder, a lot of these diagnoses have so much weight behind them Mm -hmm. and can feel so life altering in the moment when they are delivered. And if we're talking about misdiagnosis, you know, I've talked about it on here before many times. And I think all three of us have had these experiences, but like I was misdiagnosed bipolar too, because I had gambling addiction before, because I had impulsivity in my life because of all these other contributing factors get put on mood stabilization medication that doesn't work. That actually has the adverse effect. And then all of a sudden it's created this like snowball effect of like problem areas that are now no longer being examined or, or mm-hmm. attended to. That's painful in itself. Mm-hmm. I also, I'm just thinking and my brain is diverging, but I've had two medical situations lately with complete different scenarios where like one was unbelievably dismissive as if you're not autistic, right? And the other one was like very affirming and understanding. So I have a speech therapist for my voice right now. And she kept saying, like, you speak so low, you speak so flat, that you're going to have to learn to speak in a higher pitch because of the vocal issues that you're having. And I was like, well, I'm autistic. I kind of default into this flat, like, delivery. And she was like, oh, okay, well, we can work with that. We'll create all of these strategies. I was like, oh, okay, awesome. Then I had a doctor who I was seeing for my back issues. And he was just like, you're so despondent. You're never looking at me when I'm talking to you, when I'm delivering this information. Are you depressed? Are you suicidal? Are you sad? And I'm like, oh, I'm just, you know, I, I was like, I'm autistic. I don't really enjoy making eye contact. It's not comfortable for me. And he's like, that doesn't, that doesn't fit though. That doesn't make sense here. You've already told me about two businesses that you run in the 30 minutes that we've been in this 
appointment. And I'm like, so this is like every day, right? Where we are so often having to pick and choose when to disclose information. Is it safe to do so? Is it going to be dismissed? Is it going to be affirmed? And I think it that creates this extra layer of grief where you have to move through the world wanting to feel accepted, but never truly knowing if that acceptance and affirmation is actually going to be possible or happen. And I think that's really fucking hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes me just think of like the ever moving journey of relief and grief, right? That it's a constant journey of every interaction. And is it going to be relief that they get me and they're going to validate it? Or is it grief that it's another situation of being dismissed or denied? And it's like constantly a coming out process. Or not. I, I love that. That's dynamic. It's not static. It's we're, mm-hmm. we're constantly in that grief and relief. And I love that idea of we're constantly coming out. Yeah. 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 And I'm a mental health professional. Like I know how to advocate for myself. So I'm just thinking in those moments, I then have a, a tertiary layer of grief for people who don't have the ability to advocate for themselves the way I can. Because then it becomes the situation medically, especially where your like if you bring something to the attention of a provider and they just dismiss it and it's a valid concern you may not seek treatment again you may just have to you know grin and bear it going forward and that fucking sucks yeah. too especially with how many health conditions are co- like co-occurring with autism how many autoimmune things are there that we have to really push and advocate for for that to even be seen yeah hmm. Meg and I text you about like having a herniated disc in my back the other day and you're, and you're like autism, huh? <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Our bodies just kind of suck. That's part of the grief. Like for me, like, the, well, there's a handful of pieces of grief, but for me, it's, it's like encountering the limits in my body. Um, and then realizing that they're not going to go anywhere magically. There's like probably no magic diet or pill where I'm all all of a sudden going to have a body that's healthy and not in pain and can have energy. Um, That was the interesting thing with grief. Jamie, I like how you talked about the grief of like with, with when you hold space for folks of like the 30 past years. Mm -hmm. So like there is backward grief of like, all that has happened because we haven't had an accurate lens for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then there's forward grief. Like, what is this, what does this identity mean for me moving forward for my relationships? Mm -hmm. And I think it's really that like, that's interesting to have a foot in both. Yeah. Yeah, We don't talk about the forward grief very often, do we? But there's like, yeah, the idea of like, what is this going to mean? How is this going to affect me or my relationships, my body, my career? Even with the idea of, of of coming out or sharing it or not sharing it with people, there there is a a weight to that. Mm-hmm. There's a grief too, you know. When Megan, you're talking about your our bodies just really struggling and having a hard time of of it. There's a grief like I had experienced this the other day in therapy, where I was just like, I don't feel very good almost every single day, yeah. whether it's mentally, physically, the combination of both. And my therapist was like. And I I said, I think I'm just grieving the fact that I don't think that's ever going to change. Mm -hmm. And I am just in that moment experiencing the grief of acknowledging, like, we can try all the techniques and strategies in the world and we may can create some coping, but like, I don't really feel like I'm ever going to truly feel quote unquote good. 
And that is a hard thing to come to terms with too. Mm-hmm. Makes me think of the image of grief where it's not that grief gets smaller, but we get bigger to encompass the grief. Like the grief is always going to be there. It's always a part of us, but how much it impacts our day, our life, our feeling will shift and change. But that like, that piece is always kind of there. Mm-hmm. And on the relief side, to lighten <laughs> the mood a little bit, <laughs> we get these really great communities where we find people that we can have these conversations with and feel seen and not go through the grief by ourselves, that there are people now so more, so much more publicly and community oriented to be able to connect with, to find those families, to have these podcasts that we can be heard and seen and validated in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The liberation and it's interesting. I have to use the word liberation. I think, cause there, for me, it was like a freedom of, I felt liberated to be me for like, cause I, I was a very high masker. Um, or I don't know if that, I masked a lot and it really impacted me. Um, shit. What was I saying? I have a lot of brain fog these days, Jamie. Um, liberation, liberation, liberation yeah freedom to be myself and then like freedom to connect with people the way that i authentically connect um so much of masking right is about i figure out how other people connect and then do that but i never actually feel connected mm-hmm. it's been a huge for me to find communities where i i genuinely feel connected even across digital space which is pretty powerful yeah it's making me think of i hadn't made this connection for myself before but um I went through a divorce three years ago. So in between my ADHD, my autism assessment, like was a divorce. And I think part of going through that grief process was an unmasking because it was shedding like that life, that person who I was, wasn't, or that future I saw wasn't there, which kind of led into this evolving of dyeing my hair, unmasking, setting new boundaries, realigning my relationships because of that catalyst that opened me up to having more authentic dialogue and communication um, and being more true and authentic to myself, Mm -hmm. which inevitably is unmasking and and getting to really recognize who I was before and who I am now and how different and the same she is. So that's an interesting, can I ask you, because I think that's a fascinating thought experiment. Like if we were meeting Jamie three, four years ago, like who would we be seeing in front of us? Oh, um, I would probably like be more buttoned up. Like I'd, I'd have more like a professional gleam, like all the brown hair, like, I don't know, just more like rigid or structured in how I'm supposed to present. I definitely would be sitting like without movement. Now I'm like cross-legged in my chair, like kind of spinning as we're talking. Mm-hmm. Like I, I remember like some of the first podcasts I was on like four or five years ago and like how much preparation I put into it to present a certain way. And today, like I rolled out of bed an hour ago and my breakfast is still on the table in front of me because I know that this is going to be a good conversation because I'm going to show up as me and I trust that both of you are too and it's going to be great. And so I think like a lot of that pressure has reduced and that I get to just show up. I love that. It sounds so sad when you talk about your old because you feel so alive to me, so engaged, mm-hmm. so present. Mm-hmm. And so that's so sad. Like it's hard. It's also hard to imagine you any other way. I look at pictures for myself just a couple years ago and I like barely recognize me. And I'm like, who is that? Um, and I think during during that man- marriage, I definitely like dimmed my light 
So for, for that five-year period, I was a smaller version of me. And I think back to like my early 20s and I'm like, okay, I'm more similar to her than I was this more recent version. Um, but yeah, I hadn't connected that, that kind of like journey being a part of, I knew it was a part of it, but like in that relief grief unmasking piece. Thank you guys. Thank you for the therapy yeah. today. <laughs> well, I, I do think that, that our relationships change mm-hmm. and our relationship structures often change as part of the coming to know ourselves unmasking. And that's an interesting conversation thread of like, how does coming to know yourself change relationships? And that I think has a huge, and that can be part of the grief too, right? Like mm-hmm. is that it, it can transform relationships in a way that maybe is necessary, but that there's, there's grief in that for some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine that too, with like that forward thinking of the the relief and grief of how it could change relationships. If we're not performing in the same way, or if we're being more authentic, mm-hmm. or if we're conserving our energy into relationships and boundaries and dynamics that are a more benefit, like healthy fit that Mm -hmm. fear or concern about how that might change my relationships with friends or family. Absolutely. Especially if it's like, people are used to me being a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden I'm differentiating. I have boundaries. It's Mm -hmm. I'm self advocating like people in your life are going to be like, who is this? This isn't, Mm -hmm. these aren't the patterns we're used to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm thinking, I'm wondering what you guys both think about this, but I've heard that once you're diagnosed, like, you become more autistic. And I've heard that kind of phrase is like, well, now I'm unmasking. So a lot of the things I suppressed before are now out. And like, I wonder if you've had that conversation or what that's like about, did it become more obvious or or what does that, has that been? For me, it certainly did. Like I, um, partly cause I was, I was so dissociated from my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I actually got connected to my body and taking its needs seriously, um, the way I move, the way I dress, the way I avoid eye contact, like a lot changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember it was probably like six months or nine months. Okay, this is, I don't love this story because it it relies on the stereotypes, but like it was an interesting moment of I was walking down the road, like maybe six or nine months on, I had my sweatpants on, like socks, Crocs, like sunglasses and a hat. And I was like, I look autistic. And it was this interesting moment of like, because my, in my past masked self, like my, the big reaction was like, oh, you can't be autistic. You don't look autistic, whatever it means to look autistic. But I realized in that moment, like I'm, I align with the stereotype, like, and I, and I, I think that I think now that I'm in people in public could identify me as autistic more easily um, than ever before. So for, for me, that's definitely been true. I think my answer is a combination of yes and no. I think a lot of people who now know that I am autistic are probably like, yeah, I knew that five to 10 years ago, 20 years ago. My wife, when I told her, she was like, yeah, no shit. And I was like, oh, well, I'm also very short. I'm very blunt with my communication. I always have been. I'm not going to participate in things I don't want to participate in. I also think some of that is just privilege of being able to pick and choose when I do and do not want to. But I've noticed for myself, it's more about permission for the things like Megan just mentioned, eye contact, movement constantly, 
naming it in public spaces, especially in my current roles as like a retreat and conference host, I have to name it because I want to like give other people permission, but I also want to give myself permission to sensory soothe when I need to. So I think it's just come with more awareness of what my sensory system needs and being really attuned to that and setting boundaries around it. That's really been the big shift for me. I would say my communication hasn't changed. The way I socialize hasn't changed. Like a lot of that stuff has stayed pretty consistent. I think a lot of like the sensory piece of giving myself permission to not tolerate discomfort. Mm -hmm. Like so many spaces, it's like, well, you know what? Shoes hurt sometimes and you just have to go through it. They Well, they don't have to. I can find shoes that don't hurt. I don't have to fit the fashion expectation if it's discomfort. Um, I think if you had asked me before, if like back to the stereotype, if tags bothered me, I would say absolutely not. And there was a moment during my like self-assessment process where I was getting dressed and I grabbed something new and I put it on and I immediately ripped off the tag and I caught myself like mid motion. And I was like, I automatically rip out the tags in everything. So no, tags don't bother me because they don't exist in my clothing. And I hadn't realized that I did that so automatically that it wasn't an issue. And so like just kind of paying attention to to that piece of what are some of those sensory things that I was already coping with or already like making accommodations with for myself without naming it as that. That's, I, oh, oops, sorry, go ahead, Meg. I was just I am like constantly amazed by how people intuitively adapt and accommodate for themselves. Like, and with, with the assessment process, I often have to tease out um, if someone's saying like, no, I don't have an issue with this or this, I'll do a little bit more drilling to figure out how they're accommodating or if they're accommodating. And, Mm -hmm. and often if they're saying, no, it's not an issue, I'll find like, well, yeah, it's not, food's not an issue because I do X, Y, Z. Like mm-hmm. I do all of these things to make it work for me. Mm-hmm. Not realizing like how much labor they're putting in. Um, I think that's also part of the interesting like discovery process is realizing like, oh, I'm working a lot harder than most people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like to ask that question about what is your system? How do you do it? Okay, it doesn't bother you. How do you do it? So it doesn't bother you. Of getting an idea about like, what what are all of the the systems you have to have in place to get to that outcome? I like that as a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. Just thinking about what you just said, Jamie, in terms of tags and sensory stuff, like that's one thing that subtly has changed for me too, of setting boundaries around my sensory needs. So, for example, my dad moved to Florida. He keeps his thermostat at fucking eighty degrees at all times, which is horrible. And the last time I went there, I got my own Airbnb so I could set the thermostat at like 68 and he gave me a hard time about it. And I was just like, listen, I'm not going to be uncomfortable in your home. Like I can't do that. If you want me to like spend time, be present, have a good time. I have to have my own space where I can put the air conditioning on where I don't have to sweat while I'm sleeping or not sleep because I can't because of the temperature. So Stuff like that has become paramount for me. And I think it's become like at the forefront of a lot of the things I do now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that shows up with like some of the, the boundaries that I've learned to set too, like visiting my parents. Like I need an activity. I need to know what the activity is and the time like set aside for it so that I can emotionally and physically prepare for it. Some of the the open-ended ambiguity of we'll just figure it out like is is really dysregulating for me. And I'm figuring that out more 
as I think I've always thought of it as, oh, that's just anxiety. I'm an anxious person. And now I'm like, okay, no, the transitions are hard. I need to be able to anticipate so that I can regulate my system for that period of time. And that's been like a big learning curve with it too. Hmm. I see all the wheels turning. <laughs> I think I'm I'm enjoying this conversation. I'm also just looked at my phone and I know we need to wrap it up soon because you have something <laughs> in 10 minutes. So I'm trying to think about that. I'm always <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Uh, we, I can get time. to that. <laughs> it's it's so challenging. I'm like so focused on it all the time. Um no, I I think there are so many nuances to grief. And I think that, but I'm glad you named the relief side, Jamie, because we could spend hours talking about the grief side. We could have endless episodes about it from different perspectives. But I do think finding the relief and the relief, the abilities to even have small moments of relief, whether it be psychologically, emotionally, physiologically, like just figuring out those small moments, whatever those are, because it's definitely helped me expand my world and be more comfortable with who I am. And I'm glad we have this podcast because a lot of the behind the scenes is just Megan and I sharing text messages of people who have messaged us about this exact thing yeah. of like, just being able to talk about this feels like relief to me, even though oftentimes I leave these podcasts thinking I was just in therapy for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what happens when you bring three clinicians together. <laughs> We're going to do that work. But I absolutely, when I have you, this podcast is on my reference list for after I do an assessment so people have somewhere to go to hear about their experience, to hear about resources, to hear about some parallels. Um, it's just such a great resource. And, and there really aren't a lot out there. There's not a lot. We're really creating a lot of, of that community as we're speaking. Yeah, I think it's a really talk about relief excitement. I think it's an exciting time for autistic culture. Like we're really we are like there's so much expansion of autistic culture, increased accessibility to it, which I think really cultivates a sense of belonging, which mm -hmm. um, I, I think is something a lot of us have spent a lot of our life craving and not fully experiencing. So, yeah, it's an exciting time to be in this world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the the normalization of experience is relieving too. So there's relief in knowing that it's not just me, right? Like there's relief in knowing like other people move through the world in a similar way. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps with this journey that can be so, I want to try to say a word, but I always get it wrong. Tumultuous. That's not the way to say it. Can I say a word that you can't? Tumultuous. Yeah. Oh wait, no, I can't say it. <laughs> the person who does our like transcription is going to be like shaking her head at us right now. Tumultuous. Tumultuous. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I can't say yeah. that word. I can never say that word. But I, I can't believe there's a word I can say that you can't. <laughs> From episode one to 33, we have now found it. <laughs> what was the word that we were so oh, claustrophobic? Claustrophobic. Just the other, just yesterday to my spouse, I had a migraine yesterday and I had, I was like, yeah, I had an aura migraine talking about dyslexia, Jamie. And I was just like, and he's like, you just kind of chuckled or smiled. And he's like, you mean aura? And I was like, why the hell would you spell it aura? Because it's aura. <laughs> 
Nice. <sighs> Sorry, I Patrick. Think you were no. so adventurous. I, I can't say it. I can't spell it. It doesn't matter. I just mean <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> Thank you for both uh, having my back on that. So, yeah, I just think it's normalizing and that feels relieving. And I think that the more we can talk about this stuff publicly and openly and share with the world, then that's really, that feels really fulfilling for me. And this was a good conversation today. And Jamie, we appreciate you coming on and making time and just being so open to it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. This was like a really like deep conversation. So I appreciate that. We aim to please. So tell the audience where they can find more of what you've got going on. Uh, sure. So I'm Jamie Roberts. I am the founder of Equilibrium Counseling Services in Southern California, where we do individual group and family therapy for teens and adolescents. You can find me on all the social medias at Neurodivergent Therapist. And I recently launched a new course for clinicians on becoming a neurodivergent um, affirming provider. And so that's available on our website as well to kind of hone some of those skills to be affirming for the clients that are coming in who are identifying as neurodivergent. Awesome. Megan, got anything before I close it out? Nope. I never have anything good at conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> you got some good comments in some of our uh, Instagram posts like, Megan, Dr. Neff rocked the awkward goodbye without Patrick. So I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out, y'all. Um, <laughs> all right. For everyone listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast, new episodes are out every single Friday on all podcast platforms and YouTube. Like, download, subscribe, and share. And goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.